lecture is this layout of what the what theology is and then what are the parameters that you're working in in theology and then also the issue of authority and not necessarily biblical authority but certainly inclusive of biblical authority but that is how does the authority of God and the Bible then function for us I don't think we can separate our understanding because when we say authority well what we actually mean is the authority of God, right? That we don't want to separate biblical authority from that. Um, but it we, we've come to a kind of uh, strange pass in recent history in that many people say, oh, I don't like theology or I don't do theology. And of course, again, I think this is just a kind of ignorance. Because the word theo just means God, and the the talk, God talk, or thought about God. So as a Christian, you don't want to think about God. You don't want to talk about God. Sort of like, you know, my intro to philosophy class just means wisdom. You know, talk about wisdom, uh, love of wisdom. You don't love wisdom. Uh, And and that's the, the... the way I mean the word, that in the broadest, it, it really is in the broadest sense. So if you think of our Romans class, but we're, we're now in chapter 16, uh, was Paul, did you have to be a, you know, uh, only a, you know, academic or an expert to understand? No, Paul is, is writing this book for everybody. Every Christian should be able to, and this was Paul's expectation, was to be able to sit down, read this book, and understand it. Now, I, I think that is, in fact, a high calling that we are called to as Christians, as Paul says in Romans, to uh, have a transformation of our minds, of a complete transformation uh, in our understanding. And so I think the place this occurs, or the task in which we undertake this transformation, is in fact the study of theology. And maybe even the word study is the wrong word, and that's what I'm doing up here. That really what we're describing is the entire Christian walk. Think of the two on the road to Emmaus, and Christ comes and begins to walk beside them. Of course, they don't immediately know, and he unfolds scripture for them. Uh this, to my mind, is the picture of what we are to be about as Christians. That is, the Christian walk um, is one in in which we are continually engaged in the, you know, the Old Testament. The picture is that we will always have uh, the the law, you know, that they would literally, the Pharisees would have the law carried. They'd have the headband. You've seen pictures of the law. Well, I think the, the 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 reality of that is fulfilled in as Christians that what we are to be about is talk about God. We're to be. Uh, I I don't know. Do you have something else you want to talk about that is more important? I'm I'm willing to, I'm willing to talk about other things. Sports. Yeah. <laughs> I knew I knew that. <laughs> I mean, I like I like sports, and we can talk about that. But how long? How, how long are we gonna talk about that? 
Yeah, boy, what about them Blue Jays? That tells you how much. <laughs> uh, so, I literally think that our day-to-day conversation is to be about this. now. And so, part of the training here, or part of what we are inducted into uh, in uh, the walk here is, well, I think most of us are confused by that. We're, we really don't know what that means, and in fact, our stomach may be turning a little bit at this moment. I, I think here of my aunt, who was a very pious lady, and you know every other word was Jesus, and she was a wonderful woman, but uh, there is that kind of sickening, uh, is that the wrong word? Uh, uh, kind of religiosity that is a sort of fake, uh, you know, and I don't mean, I'm sorry, I don't mean to talk up about you. She's long passed on. But um, that, that I don't, when we talk about God, part of what this process is then is that we are laying a foundation or understanding in which the web of our understanding is to have a theological interconnection. So that, yes, we, of course, by that, I don't mean that suddenly we're going to stop engaging in the realities of the world, philosophy or, you know, whatever, whatever reality that is. But the point is, the access to our understanding of the, these realities is theology. So by this, don't get the notion, oh, there's a narrowing of our conversation or our thought life. In fact, I think it's just the opposite, that there is a broadening of our areas of interest and engagement, because as we engage, you know, how big is God? Well, all truth is God's truth. And all truth that we encounter will only cohere then as we connect it theologically. So, how would you differentiate, or would you need to, between theology and discipleship? I don't think I would. Yeah. I don't think I would. That that uh, and that's the that this is sort of my idea in starting plowshares. Uh, we're gonna, ha- you know, the this is an extension. I feel like of the our community here. I think that's the 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 proper way to do discipleship. The proper place to learn theology is in community. Um, that that then, you know, what is the foundation of our conversation? I'm thinking here of. Origen, who uh, is the teacher in the first known seminary, and uh, Gregory, uh, who, uh, what is his name? His, he will later become a bishop, and he'll be called the Wonder Worker. But Gregory describes his early relationship to Origen, and he said when he came, you know, uh, to Palestine to study with Origen, that Origen greeted them like friends, he and his brother. So that it was like Origen uh, 
was excited to get to know these guys. And, of course, Gregory said, you know, that was shocking to us because even then, you know, that was not the normal student-teacher relationship. And so he describes the entire relationship as a kind of relationship grounded in love and one in which the primary thing that Origen was teaching them was demonstrated in his own life, the virtues that Origen portrayed, which is really, you know, when we talk about doing theology, and that's what the the language here we're using of walk and uh, life, and it's a way of life, we're trying to get away from what is often considered the true nature of theology, and that is that it's academic, that it's in your head, that it's uh, scholastic. Uh, no, I, I think that that has ruined theology for many people. And so when people say, oh, I don't want to do theology, I suppose that's what they have in mind. It's that old, dry, scholastic, uh, abstract sort of theology in which the subject of theology is pictured, in fact, as uh, a kind of scholastic understanding of who God is. So very often, you know, what you would begin with in a theological understanding is talking about the characteristics of God, and then you would talk about those characteristics using a Greek philosophical understanding. I know your, your eyes are already glazing over, even as I'm just describing, uh, you know, that, uh, that it's so abstract and so removed and so I think that real theology is always training in discipleship. It always has to do with learning virtues. It always has to do uh, with that kind of lived-out uh, reality. So, I, to my mind, there's, there is, we should never in theology uh, be doing an academic theology. Certainly, we'll have we'll we'll be we'll talk about God, but how do we know who God is? How, what is the proper way of talking about God? I think that we the proper way of talking about God is, in fact, God as Redeemer. the The scholastic abstractions about God are really the presumption is that we can know God in the abstract. I don't think we know God in the abstract. I think that's why it's so boring. How do we know God? We know God as Redeemer. We know God in and through the revelation of who God is in Christ Jesus. So God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is the one who's delivered us out of Egypt. Uh, that God, then, is known through the redemptive activity uh, that culminates in the person and work of Christ. Um, uh, already I'm describing something to you that I think you probably recognize is a departure from classical theology. So if you go, you, you begin in a classical course in theology, the place you begin is the, Maisie knows this term, the pro, the prolegomena. One class I had in theology, they made up a song about you know, prolegomena, prolegomena, <laughs> uh, which 
Karl Barth says, well, there shouldn't be a prolegomena. Now, it took him a thousand pages to say that. Uh, that is, that the pro, you know, what did the prolegomena consist of? Usually it would consist of arguments for God. That, you, that is, you'd establish apologetic arguments for God. So the ontological, cosmological, teleological, uh, that if you look at, for example, the book by Jack Cottrell, he is doing, he's following the classical system. He's laying out those classical arguments for God. He proves God, then talks about authority, and, and lays all that out. And then chapter 2, you begin to open the Bible. But my point would be, you've got the wrong God in chapter 1, and you've messed up the whole system throughout. That is, if you begin with God in the abstract, <clears throat> that uh, you're really working with Aristotelian notions of God, with Platonic notions of God. There is a presumption that you can know who God is in and through philosophy, and that is often incorporated then into a Does everybody know what I mean by scholastic, the, the fusion of Greek and Christian thought? So if you go back historically, <clears throat> we usually identify, you know, it was a slow process to just say it was one or other person that may not be fair. But usually we identify Anselm of Canterbury as the father of scholasticism. Anselm is fusing Greek, Platonic, thought with Christianity so if you read the you know the monologion the proslogion uh, it's really just a, a platonic project now that may be already it may be a bit of an exaggeration in that did he know of Aristotle there's debate about that and so but not to enter that debate the other key worker in scholasticism is Aquinas, who is effusing an Aristotelian notion. And, and again, there is this huge departure because these guys have shaped the entire theological project. And so part of what we did in philosophy is let's get rid of, let's you know extract ourselves from those notions. The notion that they're both working with is that they can know who God is apart from Christ Jesus. Now, uh, I think that's an accurate description of both Aquinas and Anselm. Um, the Nouvelle theolo you know, theology guys may, they would say, oh no, you've made a mistake there, that you can't know who God is apart from Christ. But what they mean by that is not the Christ that we encounter in the New Testament, not the Christ that we encounter in special revelation. They just broaden out who Christ is to say, well, that even the Christ that we, you know, or the truth that we discover in nature. So it, it's, it, so what I'm saying is different. I'm saying, well, no, actually we know of God through Christ Jesus. Otherwise, uh, and what I mean by that is the special revelation of who God is in Christ, in the life and death and resurrection of Christ. And that then is the hermeneutic in and through which we apprehend uh, 
the Old Testament and who God is ultimately as Redeemer in the Old Testament. All of that to say, theology, now, in fact, the word practical theology has also been ruined for us. Uh, because we've got today, we've got what is con- considered, at, you know, kind of scholastic or abstract or academic theology, and then oh, to counter the boring nature of that, people have come up with practical theology. But what they often mean by practical theology is so mundane or so, uh, you know, uh, pedestrian as to just, you know. It's better than that. I'm sure it's better than that. But what I mean by practical theology is not that. I just mean all theology. Theology is practical. And so if you think practical here in terms of practices, we don't, just as we don't understand who God is apart from redemption, so we don't understand what redemption is apart from redemptive practices. So your question, Maisie, was a, an amazing question. Uh, that is, that is the theology different from discipleship? Or is it different from... No, I think that's what, what we're to be about. So uh, what are the practices? The, think of the Lord's Supper. What is the Lord's Supper teaching us. It's teaching us a mode of hospitality. Um, I think what we do here on Tuesday night is the center of everything that we do. Because who's the host? Well, ultimately, God is the one who hosts us. God is the one who invites us in. The fellowship that we experience as Christians, that we can begin to picture as a little bit of heaven on earth. Uh, that's something that has been accomplished through Christ Jesus. So, uh, baptism is a picture of a practice, and Paul appeals to baptism not as a one-off sort of thing. It is certainly that. But he's saying, you've been baptized, now practice that. Now live that out, that dying and being raised again. Um, the life of taking up the cross, you know. So as we learn the practice of Christianity, I think we're doing theology. So can you be a Christian and not do theology? I think, in fact, that's an impossibility. No, if you're a Christian, you're doing theology. It's just a matter of what kind of theology you're doing. Are you doing one, you know, that's uninformed, and of course this is inclusive of those who say, oh, I don't do that theology, I just believe the Bible. Yeah, but how, in what way, what has shaped your understanding? In other words, if we are not self-aware enough to say, here is the tradition, here is the, you know, uh, the church, here is the community that has shaped my belief system, then we really can't, we have, a, we have a theology, it's just we don't know what it is, and we don't know how it compares to anything else. We all do theology, we are all theologians, it's just a matter, are we bad theologians, or are we going to be well informed and do theology rightly? So, in my understanding, 
this is uh, this is what our lives are to be. Uh, everything in our life should come together. Who, what, where, and why uh, of your life is the discussion, you know. And I, again, uh, I think my daughters here, they they both say, well, wait a minute. You're just, you're saying we're not to be practical. And no, I don't mean that. I just mean if you're, if you, whatever you're to do, it's to be grounded in the understanding of who you are in Christ and who God is. And that's, that's the Elijah. Um, so this is why traditionally, I think theology was rightly identified as the queen of the sciences. Um, the greatest minds in the history of the Western world gave themselves over to the study of theology, the rise of modern science. You know, the if you go back and look at people like Copernicus, well, he worked for the church, or Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton considered himself a theologian. Uh, and that's true up until, actually, Newton's our dividing point of this, because up until then, science was natural theology. They were just doing the work of theology in uh, the in nature, uh, and I think that's the right way to understand it. And then suddenly we have the splitting of the world uh, in modernity. I think we can, if we had to blame any, we blame a lot of people. But you know, you go back. You've, we've been through this in philosophy. You know, who do we blame? First of all, I think that's the wrong question. And it's a wrong way of doing history. I think it was a, a, a time, a period that we can't identify any particular. But if we had to identify some markers, some key markers, who would be some people in modernity in which science, theology, you know, the church, the secular world, all of these things became split off from one another? Yeah, I, Descartes, that's everybody's favorite, and mine too. I don't know how you do better than Descartes. And, and you've heard me do this before. You know, that you, I think you can go take this to an extreme. You know, Leslie Newbegin said, well, with Descartes, you have the second fall of man. Um, I think Descartes may represent, in fact, and articulate the problem of the fall, but first of all, I don't think any one person is ever that important. And, and I think what Descartes is doing is articulating the times. This would make a great study, by the way. You know, uh, and there's, I know there's been one little bit book written. There hasn't been much written. So usually what we do, we say, oh, yeah, it was that Descartes, that dirty dog, you know. Um, so that, that's probably too simplistic. But at least in understanding the Cartesian revolution, and the split then, you know, that is taking place. You've got the Roman Catholic and the Protestant split. They're literally, in, you know, fighting and killing over authority. You have the split between science. The, the scientific revolution is up and running. Galileo is a contemporary of Descartes. Copernicus has already, you know, written his uh, picture of a, universe not earth-centered but or the solar system 
sun-centered by definition. Um, and uh, Descartes then brings that over into a, you know, his famous cogito, the meditations, are a picture then of what's happening in his lifetime. And all the, the world of, you know, uh, the uh, pre-modern world is, is falling apart. Thus, there, it is a neat way of uh, differentiating. The thing that we that I would do to kind of confuse all that and say it's never that neat of a package is what we do we've done in the past with Anselm of Canterbury, and say yeah well actually the problem is deeper and longer than that Anselm is only eleven hundred you know A.D. so uh, that split then. I think resulted in an academic theology, uh, a scholastic, you know, uh, theology became predominant, and uh, the engagement that science was doing, or the you know, seemed much more exciting. And so you have the beginnings of the Renaissance, you know, the Reformation, the Renaissance, and the Reformation are a, a picture of Europe falling apart over the issue of authority. We might say that the Renaissance in Southern Europe is they're going to go with the authority of the human mind. Uh, the Reformation is a reworking of the understanding of the authority of the church and investing that more in the individual. So in both instances, there is a new appreciation for human learning, the human mind, and maybe then we could say the rise of a kind of absolute individualism. Uh, Charles Taylor has done a whole book on this if you're interested in the, you know, the, the, the I've lost the name of the book, but on the history of the idea of the self. Um, this is Nicholas, Nicholas Lash, I like this quote and I'll I'll jump ahead after. Uh, can you see this, Maisie? Can you read that for us? Mm. Yep. To think as a Christian is to try to understand the stellar spaces, the arrangement of microorganisms and DNA molecules, the history of Tibet, the operation of economic markets. To think. Does I say toothache? Toothache, yeah, toothache. <laughs> King Lear, the CIA, Grandma's cooking, or as Aquinas put it, all things. In relation to that uttering, uh, utterance and enactment of God, which they express and represent. To act as a Christian is to work with, to, al to alter, or if need be, to endure all things, in conformity with that understanding. It's all theological in, in Lash's understanding. And, I, and for that to be true, for this to work itself out, I think we need to have a very different conception of the Bible, of you know the significance of salvation, how salvation functions, uh, I think that there is a theology, 
that can be shunted aside and compartmentalized and co-opted then, and I'm afraid this is what has happened in evangelicalism and, you know, the various forms of Christianity that we have encountered, that our theological understanding is put in a separate compartment, just like Rene Descartes would have had it. He said to the church, well, you guys deal with the, you know, the soul and redemption, but, you know, we scientists and philosophers, we'll deal with everything else. In a sense, Descartes' prediction became true. And theology got the short end of the stick. And I'm afraid that in many Christian institutions of learning, they're still working with the short end of the stick that Descartes gave them. It's sort of boring. It's unrelated to anything else. And it, in fact, is a kind of crude and flat reading of Scripture. Because what has happened in this country, I think, is that just utilitarianism, uh, pragmatism, the, the culture of this period has co-opted our reading of Scripture. The way that Karl Barth has said the same thing, he says that uh, as he was reading Romans, and, uh, and he had already become a preacher, the strange new world of the Bible opened up to it. What he means by that, he began to enter into a different world because of his realization and understanding of who God is in Christ. That thrilling, you know, discovery of an alternative cosmos, an alternative world, uh, I am afraid is precisely what is lost in scholastic, classical, uh, evangelical, even, I think we could even use the word Protestant approaches. Uh, the very way in which they engage the world has left most of the world untouched then by what I can, would consider the foundational understanding. So, let me pause there. Is that such big and abstract stuff that it makes no sense? The foundation of the practical theology is that it's applied to everything. It applies to everything. It's not just, It's not that it's just only answering this, this who God is. Yeah. But it's, it's applied to everyday life. It's, it's yeah. What is what is a uh, what is a table? What is a chair? Can you answer the question of the basic realities of this world? apart from understanding God as creator and redeemer. Um, can you begin to even talk about apprehending or understanding the world? In other words, this was the picture even in science, in modern science. Why did they need Christianity? Why did they need a Judeo-Christian understanding? Because the... Uh, things that you need for science, first of all, is that the universe, the world is orderly. Why would it be orderly? You understand, most, in most worldviews, most systems, the world's not orderly. It's chaotic. And it's presumed that there is a chaos. And so the way you 
control the world or manipulate it is through the gods or the spirits or the forces, you know. Uh, so in Christianity, the idea is the universe is uniform because it's created. The second thing is that uh, it's logical and it is a logic or understanding that we, being created in God's image, can apprehend. We can uh, follow the thoughts of God as they've been expressed in the created order. So that common understanding that's there in science, I think we need to extend to everything, into sociology, psychology, philosophy. This is the stuff, the work that's being done by with radical orthodoxy, you know, John Milbank's big book on sociology. But the radical orthodox guys are, in a sense, they're returning to a kind of medieval understanding of theology as the queen of the sciences. It's very exciting. I don't agree with everything that they're doing. I don't agree with their, even their... But I, the project is one that I think is to be commended. So what happened with Descartes is suddenly that sort of big-picture project of... The, you know, what is a university? Well, the university was founded with the idea that there is a universal coherence that we can study all truth and that it coheres so that it can be you know, apprehended in a one form or one kind of thought. Really, the university has fallen apart itself. So if you go down to Mizzou, you go to the English department, they're going to be talking about a very different kind of truth than in the engineering department or the medical science. Though the, the university is still there as a as a artifact of a medieval understanding, but there's really no apprehension of truth that coheres into one form of thought. I think as Christians, we still do believe in that kind of universal truth. But unfortunately, uh, uh, Christians have been, uh, you know, Christianity is, is itself then guilty of relinquishing uh, the main forms of thought then, the, the engagement with reality to, you know, the social scientists or to the other scientists or to, and imagine that, oh, well, the theologian only discuss, uh, talks about abstractions, you know, about God and things. Does that make sense? I don't. Um, as as this as as this unfolds, or you get begin to get a handle on it, it, it can be quite exciting. This is what I've done in the area of psychoanalysis, you know, that. And, and, of course, that's what needs to happen. None of us can do everything. We all need to do something. So, I, you know, you take an area like psychoanalysis and you say, okay, here's what's happening in this field, but what do we do as a Christian and a theologian? How do we talk to these guys? Well, it turns out that we have a lot to talk about and that uh, as Christians to imagine that theology does not address the deep grammar of the human mind is to miss out on what we're to be about. You know, should, as a Christian, 
Do I have something to say to people about their mental health? Well, in a strange way, in the flat evangelical or you know typical Protestant reading, the answer is no. Oh, we have we have specialists. You know, you'll have to go see a, a psychoanalyst. And unfortunately, you probably really do need to go see the psychoanalyst because he's better informed then than the typical local preacher. But does the Bible have anything to say about mental health? About deep the deep grammar of human thought? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it has all kinds of things to say. But we read the Bible in such a fashion that we make it not address those areas. And so that's just one field. But I think every field, it's the same thing. Scripture is addressing those things. It has something to say. And uh, but it it takes people who are specialists, you know, in uh, psychoanalysis, sociology, uh, philosophy, what a, you know, what whatever your area is, engineering. I think that there is no field mathematics. There is no field that should be left untouched by our understanding of who God is in Christ. All right, I'll stop there, unless you have something. I don't really, I'm not a big fan of The Simpsons. I'm not saying I don't like it, but I just never watched Bart Simpson. But I've, I've seen a little cartoon of, you know, Bart Simpson and all the kids are there in church. Of course, they're all asleep. Uh, <laughs> that it's so boring. That it's so disconnected from anything. Barna recently did, a, well, actually it was in 2011, they did a, a poll of people your age. And there is a sort of mass exodus from church, and they had, you know, they had six reasons young people are leaving church. What are the six reasons? Number one, uh, that they, in our world today, we're encountering all kinds of worldviews and understandings, and Christian teaching is perceived as frightened and withdrawing and not addressing those that understanding. And so the combination of this exposure to the world and the Christian withdrawal from the world, it is happening across the board, that, um, that there is a focus then, a shift away from a, uh, a deep engagement to a kind of uh, uh, accommodating the needs, wants, and desires so we'll do more of what they want and less of this profound engagement. Um, 
and that's you know that the, uh, in the Christian churches, especially nearly all of our colleges, that they get rid of the theological faculty. They hire sports, you know, full-time athletic directors. So we've got several colleges that have started football teams and, you know, uh, focused on athletics to draw students in. So to me, it's very interesting as Bible colleges and seminaries are dumbing down the curriculum on one end of the church Young people are exiting the church out the other end because they find the teaching shallow, boring, and disconnected. Well, that shouldn't be a shocker. Uh, that you know, go. It used to be if you'd come into a little town like Moberly, you know, a generation or two generations ago. Let's talk about the turn of the, you know, the turn from the 19th to the 20th century. And you'd come into town. You say, "Tell me who the smart guy in town is. Who's the who's the best educated person here in town?" Uh, what do you think they would have said? The preacher. The preacher. Yeah, because very often the preacher would be. He would have a uh, certainly would have a graduate degree. Often would have a. Uh, uh, you know, a doctorate, a PhD. Uh, you think that's likely to happen? You know, who's the who's the? No, it's you know, today it would be the medical doctor or some sort. You know, medical doctors are, but they're technicians. They're people who know how. And so we've moved from that kind of broad specialty and deep education to a kind of. Uh, the preacher is kind of uh, uh, with a kind of shallow engagement. The other, the the second reason in Barna's poll uh, that uh, people are leaving is that in church they they do not experience God. In some way, God is they they don't. And so I think that that is a true reflection on the reality, you should leave church if it's boring, disconnected, and has nothing to do with the, the real world, and if God is missing. Well, that <laughs> I would leave too. Uh, but I think the, the reason that, it, that that's the experience is because the church and Christian colleges and seminaries, uh, not just central, but, but have, have been co-opted then by the the spirit of the age have been co-opted by the culture uh, and so what I'm trying to describe and I think I think that there are others is that oh no that in fact the church should constitute its own culture and I don't mean by that that we all become Amish but in, in fact, just the pre precisely the opposite. We engage culture in a knowing sort of way, but the Christian culture is uh, apprehends and, in a sense, is dominant in terms of understanding, so that we're not co-opted by the culture as it is. Uh, that we have an understanding of the Bible that it really does open up a, a, a different world for us. Otherwise, what we will do is just make it an extension 
of an, a, a world that we already understand. And so I think that's easier, in a sense, is that being a Christian is just more of the same. And so now I'm a Christian, I'll be a better basketball player, or a better, you know, I'll be a Christian basketball player, or a Christian dot, dot, dot. Maisie left, I didn't mean to pick on basketball. Or, you know, whatever, whatever we're doing. Uh, You can certainly do that, but but to imagine that Christianity is simply a justification for making you more successful and you do not change your understanding of the very notion of success and what that would look like in a, a Christian framework is to miss the point. It's almost like you are seeking honor and glory by just being a Christian. Like, I don't always think about that, just being a better person, being an honorable person, acceptable person. Yeah, and in this culture, the, being a Christian, you know, have we ever had a president? Maybe we are about to have one, who who uh, did did not at least claim some connection. You know, they all said, "Oh yeah, they're good Christians." Now, I don't believe that for a minute, but to become, you know, to be successful at that level in this culture, being Christian is part of the package. And of course, what they mean by being Christian is not that God is, you know, they're, they're still imagining that God works through the principalities and powers of this world primarily, and all that religious stuff, you know, yeah, that's about the future, and that's, you know, uh, so that uh, what they mean by Christianity, and, and I mean in the culture as a whole, is, uh, as you said, just success, you know, and making us a better person. Uh, I think that Christianity probably makes us worse people in terms of the logic and understanding, you know, of the culture. I'm, I, that's probably, I'm being a little facetious there. It makes us, in other words, if you're looking for, you know, think of the military, you're looking for good soldiers, does Christianity make you a, a better soldier or a worse soldier? and you go right on through you know that what culture would want to do and what the training ground of education in any in this culture will want to do is to train you up to be good citizens and to be good citizens there is a kind of necessary delimitation of your powers of thought to challenge the system to question the morality of the the system. No, the system gives you a morality and you're to stick with that ethic. And of course, in this culture, it's pragmatism. In some, I guess in some systems, I mean like just certain qualities of honesty or respect or loving, you know, people, you can get to a certain point, I guess. I guess again, just depending on what kind of system you're a part of, you know. Because honesty is going to not be what they want to hear sometimes. Yeah. yeah. So I guess. Yeah. 
Yeah. Or even trying to be a peacemaker is going to disrupt a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think I think uh, uh, that would be highly disruptive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I think that's enough to disrupt the family. That's enough to disrupt your place of business. That's enough to get you fired. Uh, so true peacemaking is a very dangerous thing to do. So it doesn't make you more acceptable to people. It makes you less acceptable. And not willing to bend to the particular ethos. It may be the place you work, you know, whether it's Bratchers or Central or whatever. Every every company, every industry, every company, culture, every nation-state has an ethos that shapes us. Mm -hmm. And it may be so subtle that we are not completely aware of it. I mean, that's why it's very hard for, you know, very good people can come into a corrupt place and quickly become corrupt. Not because they started out that way, but because the the system itself is so insidious and deceitful. And so we find ourselves, you know, people are corrupted, not because uh, they are good citizens, but because they are good citizens. Mm -hmm. Is that too dark a picture? (laughs) I mean, in some ways, it, it does limit definitely limits well, I don't know, your occupations in the world to be a Christian. Definitely. Right? Because you should not be a part of certain things. That's my understanding, is there are certain things that we probably should not do. And then the more you become aware, like you're saying, is, that is, there tends to be a system in every place that you either have to conform to or not. You can almost turn that around and say um, that a particular occupation, you know, is it the occupation? I'm thinking here, uh, you know, in, uh, in Germany, Eichmann just wanted to be a bureaucrat. And he was a top bureaucrat. He was the top bureaucrat in Nazi Germany. He was completely, you know, successful as a German bureaucrat. Now, being a bureaucrat meant that he was scheduling trains to take people to the death camps. But he was nearly a genius at train scheduling. Not much else. And so, uh, who was the architect and, you know, Hitler's architect? Uh, I've lost his name. Somebody remind me. Oh, I've lost, uh, you know, that's all he wanted to do. He just wanted to be an architect. He was a really good architect. Not Himmler. Not Himmler. Oh, uh, you know, and he tells this story himself. He's actually of the Nazis. He's one of the most reflective because they didn't kill him. First of all, they didn't hang him. And he spent 20 years in prison. But after in prison, he began to reflect on his experience. And he said his ambition to be a good architect 
actually turned out to make him evil because Hitler gave him all of the means to become, you know, the top architect in Nazi Germany. But of course, that meant he's building munitions factories and Albert Speer. Speer, thank you, thank you, Christian Albert Albert Speer. Brilliant, yeah. brilliant. Google. <laughs> Google is brilliant. Yes, Albert Speer. So Speer is, I, you know, people quite, Speer is one of the Nazis that after the the uh, 20 years, he, he went on speaking tours and was very critical of himself. Whether he was truly, I think he was, truly repentant. Um, but, uh, you know, even Martin Niemöller, who was the head of the Confessing Church, uh, describes his moral failure. These are, these are people who are good citizens with middle-class values, well-educated and sophisticated, who are totally corrupted. Don't think that that cannot happen to you. I mean, that's the, that's the point here, is that if our ambitions... And this was Spears' point, and it's a very good point. He said, my ambition to be an architect, you know, that was the top, my, the height of my ambition, and that, though, delimiting kind of factor turned me into an evil person. If that's all you want to be is successful, oh, then you're open to, to being totally, uh, you know, uh, uh, evil in, in your understanding. So you would do anything to be successful? You'd do anything, yeah. In your particular field, that isn't necessarily evil. There's nothing wrong with being an architect. There's nothing wrong with being a bureaucrat. Certainly there's nothing wrong as, with Niemöller as being the head of even the, you know, the church. But what they're all describing is the system in Germany. The evil that we can now look back and say, oh yeah, that's a that was an evil system, that it was so pervasive and overwhelming that they were each then uh, co-opted by the culture. I believe that that's not just a Nazi German problem. That's always the problem in culture. It's just that when we're, in, when we're immersed in a particular culture, we're in the position that they were in of not being able to apprehend the principalities and powers that would shape us. And so when we talk about the church as a culture, I think that's what the church is to function as. It's a, a place that we can in some way gain a perspective on the culture that surrounds us and is a place that is you know, not uncritical, but in fact uh, apprehends things as they truly are. A, a church rightly functioning. And theology then should, that's where theology should take us. Miguel, was that, what do you think? I'm just thinking, I think he made me see how we do what I do, like separate, like I want to be a Christian, I want to follow Christ. But I think sometimes I think that I don't understand theology, so it kind of pulls me back from being a Christian, I guess. And I also think of theology as, well, there's like the Baptist theology or 
central theology, and it's like overwhelming sometimes. Like, like who the heck is right? And I think it just confuses me even more as to what theology means. Mm-hmm. And I do, and like the abstract, and what you said, it's like a Plato. We think of God, we want to understand God, but we're still thinking of Him like up there, and not as a Redeemer, like you said. Right. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. I, I I wish I had some brilliant comeback to to to, uh, and I should have. That I think that what you're describing is when people think theology, that's precisely what they're thinking. Oh, all of those controversies, mm-hmm. and all of those you know denominations and different. Um, you may not believe me at this point because it does seem that there is just a kind of infinite production of various positions. But what I would argue that is, in fact, once we lay out the proper approach, in other words, if if you'll agree with me on the approach, that interestingly, we suddenly are going to begin to understand there is a, a unified understanding and a coherence to scripture theology that the infinite variety of you know disagreements in fact i think are a byproduct of an improper understanding of the way authority works in this part you know if you if you've or if you've messed up the beginning of theology it's no surprise that everything else then gets messed up and so I think you can go through and describe the various theological systems, you know, when you talk about the major divisions. Well, just think, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, first big division. What's the division about? Well, actually, it's philosophical that they're dividing over the role of a Greek philosophical understanding. In that instance, for the most part, I'm not Eastern Orthodox, but in that instance, who's closer to the truth in terms of our atonement theology? I'd go with the Eastern Orthodox in their position toward... And you can just go right on down, you know, Protestant, Roman Catholic. What's happening in Protestantism, certainly we're going to agree with a lot of what... Luther and Calvin are doing, but we also have to understand they're still functioning within a Constantinian understanding. And so a lot of the divisions that we're going to get are going to flow out of a clinging to that understanding of the relationship. Do you know what I mean by Constantine, Constantinian? The idea of, you know, that the... the, the Constantine's a Christian church and culture, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 uh, that in some way they're fused. So I think that if we can clear that, clear the board a little bit, uh, and then understand, oh no, what we mean by theology is our walk with God, uh, that it'll help. But that, that's really not a good, that's not an adequate answer to your observation. It's just a more observation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you have you uh you have to take you have to get the form the you have to complain to the foundation. You know, it's not about picking uh, certain 
theory of or how to understand. I mean, yeah, you have you. I this is how I understand. Okay, all right. To understand the, the theology, to understand theology is to uh, get your foundation right. Get your that's it. Because you, I mean, it's not pick and choose what is what, but you 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 want to have. I mean, take out of the scripture and. I don't know. I yeah, no, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And and so in philosophy, we have foundationalism, right? You guys all remember foundationalism. As Christians, and this is take take account um it's a semi-trick question. Are we foundationalists? In what sense are we in what sense aren't we? Foundationalism is the idea of Rene Descartes that we can lay the foundation again upon human, the I, human reason, rationalism. And so when we talk about a, you know, modernist foundationalism, the idea is that we can build from, we build the foundation up. We're not foundationalists in that sense, right? So in that understanding, we actually lay the foundation. Maybe we need to get rid of the word. I don't. I don't have any attachment to the word. But in the New Testament, Christ is the foundation. You can't lay that foundation, nor can you fully apprehend that foundation. You can only build on that foundation. I mean, you can only uh, already accept that. Now that sounds like oh, he's being religious at this point. He's saying you know vague religious things. But no, I, I, I think that truly means something in that what it means is that we can't do what Descartes did, first of all. I think it also means we can't do what scholasticism is attempting to do, uh, to imagine that we have an epistemological foundation that is separate from or in some way in, you know incorporates Christ. So that Christ... I'll still use the word as the foundation, uh, but that means that there are certain understandings that we're going to just that we're going to build upon the cross of Christ, the Trinity, and as we go through this, that will begin to make sense to you. That oh well, that as a prime understanding, we don't begin by proving God. In other words, we don't begin by you know, the, is the Trinity a problem for us to be solved, or is the Trinity an understanding to be applied? And that's what I would say: is no, we don't. God is not a problem. You know, the existence of God, we've got to prove God. If that's where you're beginning, of necessity, you're imagining the arguments for God. You know, are your foundation and the arguments for god then turn out to also be arguments for the absolute capacity you know of human beings to arrive at an absolute knowledge if you can prove god you know this is the genius of anselm's ontological argument what you've just done is not simply prove god but you've proven the power of human reason I think that's precisely wrong. And so 
foundationalism says, no, that's precisely right. Foundationalism as a system, it hasn't at our beloved institution down the road fallen apart yet. But for most of the culture, foundationalism has fallen apart. I think that's a good thing. You know, the, the crisis in truth and all, you know, the postmodern. I think that's wonderful. Because that's true, right? It should have fallen apart long ago. Because it never really cohered. There's always been cracks in the foundation. But the answer to anti-foundationalism is, I believe, a correct comprehension or apprehension of Christ as foundation. And that means something different than function.